Part 1, Chapter 10C of The Adventures of Jimmy Dale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. The Adventures of Jimmy Dale by Frank L. Packard. Part 1 The Man in the Case. Chapter 10C the alibi concluded. A single sheet, closely written on both sides of the paper, was in his hand. It was her writing. There was no mistaking that. But every word, every line, bore evidence of frantic haste. Even that customary formula, their philanthropic crook, that had prefaced every line she had ever written him before, had been omitted. His eyes traversed the first few lines with that strange indifference that had settled upon him. What, after all, did it matter what it was? He could do nothing, not even save himself, probably. And then, with a little start, he read the lines over again, muttering snatches from them. Max Daystrich, Diamonds, The Ross Logan Stones, Wedding, Sliding Panel in Wall of Workshop, End of the Room Near Window, Ten Boards to the Right from Side Wall, Press Small Knot in the Wood, in the center of the tent board. Tonight. It brought a sudden thrill of excitement to Jimmy Dale that, impossible as he would have believed it an instant ago, for the moment overshadowed the realization of his own peril. A robbery such as that, if it were ever accomplished, would stir the country from end to end. It would set New York by the ears. It would lose the police in full cry like a pack of bloodhounds with their leashes slipped. The society columns of the newspapers had been busy for months, featuring the coming marriage of the Ross Logan's daughter to one of the country's young merchant princes. The combined fortunes of the two families would make the young couple the richest in America. The prospective groom's wedding gift was to be a diamond necklace of perfectly matched large tones that would eclipse anything of the kind in the country. Europe, the foreign markets, had been literally combed and ransacked to supply the gems. The stones had arrived in New York the day before. The duty on them alone amounting to over $50,000. All these had appeared in the papers. Jimmy Dale's brows drew together in a frown. On just exactly what percentage the duty was figured, he did not know. But it was high enough on the basis of $50,000 to assume safely that the assessed value of the stones was not less than four times that amount. Two hundred thousand dollars. 
laid down a quarter of a million well why not in more than one quarter diamonds we are ranked as the soundest kind of an investment furthermore through personal acquaintance with the high contracting parties who were in his own set he knew it to be true he shrugged the soldiers the papers too had thrown the limelight on max district who though for quite a time the fashion in the social world had up to the present been comparatively unknown to the average new yorker his own knowledge of Max Dextrit went deeper than the superficial biography furnished by the newspapers. The old Hollander had done more than one piece of exquisite jewelry work for him. The old fellow was a character that beggared description, eccentric to the point of extravagance, and deaf as a post but in craftsmanship, a modern Cellini. He employed no workmen, lived alone over his shop on one of the lower streets between 5th and 6th avenues near Washington Square, and possessed a splendid contempt for such protective contrivances as safes and vaults. If his prospective patrons expostulated on this score before entrusting him with their valuables they were at liberty to take their work elsewhere it was mark dextrix who honored you by accepting the commission not you who honored max dextrix by entrusting him with it of what use is it to me a safe he would exclaim it hides nothing it only says, I am inside. Do not look further. Come and get me. Yes, it is to explode with the nitroglycerin. Poof! And I am deaf, and I hear nothing. It is a foolishness that he had a habit of prodding at one with a leveled forefinger. Every night somewhere they are robbed. And have I been robbed? Hey, tell me that. Have I been robbed? It was true. In ten years, though at times having stones and precious metal aggregating large amounts deposited with him by his customers, Max District had never lost so much as the gold filings. There was a queer smile on Jimmy Dale's lips now. The knot in the tenth board was significant. Mark's district was scrupulously honest, a genius in originality and conception of design, a master in the perfection and delicacy of his finished work. He had been commissioned to design and set the Ross Logan necklace. The brain works quickly. All this and more had flashed almost instantaneously through Jimmy Dale's mind. His eyes fell to the letter again, and he read on. Halfway through, a sudden whiteness blanched his face, and following it, a surging tide of red that mounted to his temples.
he dazed him. It seemed to rob him for the moment of the power of coherent thought. He was wrong. He had not read aright. It was incredible. Dare devil beyond belief. And yet in its very audacity lay success. He finished the letter, read it once more, and his fingers mechanically began to tear it into little shreds. His brain was in a well, a vortex of conflicting emotions. Had Whitey Mark and Lanigan left Bristol Bobs yet? Where were they now? Was there time for this? He was staring at the little torn scraps of paper in his hand. He thrust them suddenly into his pocket and jacked out his watch. It was nearly midnight. The broad muscular shoulders seemed to square back curiously, the jaws to clamp a little, the face to harden and grow cold until it was like stone. With a swift movement, he emptied his glass into the cuspidor, set the glass back on the table, and stepped out from the stall. His destination was Mark's districts. The palace saloon was near the upper end of the Bowery, and failing a taxicab, of which none was in sight, his quickest method was to walk, and he started briskly forward. It was not far, and it was barely ten minutes from the time he had left the palace saloon when he swung through Washington Square to Fifth Avenue, and a moment later turned from that thoroughfare, heading west toward Sixth Avenue, along one of those streets which, with the city's northward trend, had quite lost any distinctive identity and from being once a modestly fashionable residential section, had now become a conglomerate potpourri of small treatment stores, shops, and apartments of the poorer class. He knew Max districts. He could well have done without the aid of the arc lamp, which, even if dimly, indicated that low, almost tumble-down two-story structure tucked away between the taller buildings on either side that almost engulfed it. It was late. The street was quiet. The shops and stores had long since been closed. Max Day Streets among them, the old Hollander's name in painted white letters, stood out against the background of a darkened workshop window. In the story above, the lights too were out. Mark's district was probably fast asleep, and he was stone deaf. A glance up and down the street, and Jimmy Dale was standing, or rather, leaning against Mark's district's door. There was no one to see, and if there were, what was there to attract attention? to a man standing nonchalantly for a moment in a doorway. It was only for a moment. Those master fingers of Jimmy Dale were walking surely, swiftly, silently, 
A little steel instrument that was never out of his possession was in the lock and out again. The door opened, closed. He drew the black silk mask from his pocket and slipped it over his face. Immediately in front of him, the stairs led upward. Immediately to his right was the door into the shop. The modest street entrance was common to both. The door into the workshop was not locked. He opened it, stepped inside, and closed it quietly behind him. The place was in blackness. He stood for a moment silent, straining his ears to catch the slightest sound, reconstructing the plan of his surroundings in his mind as he remembered it. It was a narrow oblong room, running the entire depth of the building. A very long room, blank walls on either side, a window in the middle of the rear wall that gave on a backyard, and from the backyard there was access to the lane. Also, as he remembered the place, it was a riot of disorder with workbenches and odds and ends strewn without system or reason in every direction. One had need of care to negotiate it in the dark. He took his flashlight from his pocket, and preliminary to a more intimate acquaintance with the interior, glanced out through the front window near which he stood, and with a suppressed cry, shrank back instinctively against the wall. Two men were crossing the street, heading directly for the shop door. The arc lamp lighted up their faces. It was Inspector Lanningan of headquarters and Whitey Mac. The quick intake of Jimmy Dale breath was sucked through clenched teeth. They were close on his heels then, far closer than he had imagined. It would take Whitey Mac scarcely any longer to open that front door than it had taken him. Close on his heels. His face was rigid. He could hear them now at the door. The flashlight in his hand winked down the length of the room. It was a dangerous thing to do, but it was still more dangerous to stumble into some object and make a noise. He darted forward, circuiting a workbench, a stool, a small hand forge. Again the flashlight gleamed. Against the side wall near the rear was another workbench. With a sort of coarse canvas cotton hanging partway down in front of it, evidently to protect such things as might be stored away beneath it from dust. And Jimmy Dale sprang for it, whipped back the canvas, and crawled underneath. He was not an instant too soon. As the canvas fell back into place, the shop door opened closed and the two men had stepped inside.
Whitey Mark's voice, in a low whisper though it was, seems to echo raucously through the shop. Maybe we'll have a sweet wait. But I got the straight dope on this. He's going to make a try for Dutchie's sparklers tonight. We'll let him go the limit. And we don't either of us make a move till he's pinched them. And then we get him with the goods on him. He can't get away. He hasn't a hope. There's only two ways of getting in here or getting out. This door and window here, and a window that's down there at the back. You got this, and I'll take care of the other end. Savai? Right, Lanigan answered grimly. Go ahead. There was a sound of footsteps moving forward. Then a vicious bump the scraping of some object along the floor, and a muffled curse from Whitey Mac. Use your flashlight, advised the inspector in a guarded voice. I haven't got one, damn it, growled Whitey Mac. It's all right, I'll get along. Again the steps, but more warily now, as though the man were cautiously feeling ahead of him for possible obstacles. Jimmy Dale for a moment held his breath. He could have reached out and touched the man as the other passed. Whitey Mac went on until he had taken up a position against the rear wall. Jimmy Dale heard him as he brushed against it. Then silence fell. He was between them now stretched full length on the floor. Jimmy Dale raised the lower portion of the canvas away from in front of his face. He could see nothing. The place was in Stygian blackness, but it had been close and stifling, and at least it gave him more air. The minutes dragged by, each more interminable than the one that had gone before. Not a movement, not a sound. And then, through the stillness, very faint at first, came the regular repressed breathing of Whitey Mac, who was much the nearer of the two men. And once noticeable, almost imperceptible as it was, it seemed to pervade the room, and fill it with a strange, ominous resonance that rose and fell until the blackness palpitated with it. Slowly, very slowly, Jimmy Dale's hand crept into his pocket and crept out again with his automatic. He lay motionless once more. Time in any concrete sense seemed to exist. Fancied shapes began to assume form in the darkness. By the door, Lanningan stared uneasily, shifting his position slightly. Was it hours? Was it only minutes? It seemed to ring through the nerve-wracking stillness like the shriek of a hurtling shell, and it was only a whisper. Watch yourself, Lanningan. 
whispered Whitey Mac. He's coming down through the yard. Don't move till I start something. Let him get his paws on the sparklers. Silence again, and then a low rasping at the window, like the gnawing of a rat. Then, inch by inch, the sash was lifted. There was a sound as of a body forcing its way over the sill cautiously. Then a step upon the floor inside. Another, and still another. The figure of a man loomed up suddenly against the glow of a flashlight as he threw the round white ray inquisitively here and there over the rear wall. And now he appeared to be counting the boards. One, two, three, up to ten. His hand ran up and down the tenth board. Again and again he repeated the operation, and something like the snarl of a baited beast echoed through the room. He half turned to snatch at something in his pocket, and the light for a moment showed a black-bearded, lowering face, partially hidden by a peaked cap that was pulled far down over his eyes. There was a rip and tear of rending wood, as a steel jimmy, in lieu of the spring the man evidently could not find, beat in between the boards, a muttered oath of satisfaction, and a portion of the wall slid back, disclosing what looked like a metal-lined cupboard. He reached in, seized one of a dozen little boxes, and wrenched off the cover. A blue scintillating gleam seemed to leap out to meet the white ray of the flashlight. The man chuckled hoarsely and began to cram the rest of the boxes into his pockets. Jimmy Dale stared. On hands and knees, he was creeping now from beneath the workbench. Something caught and tore behind him the canvas cotton, and at the sound, with a sharp cry, the man at the wall whirled, the light went out, and he sprang toward the window. Jimmy Dale gained his feet and leaped forward. A revolver shot caught a lane of fire through the blackness, and above the roar of the report, Whitey Mark's voice in a fierce yell. It's all right, Lanigan. I got him. No, hell. There was a terrific crash of breaking glass. He's got away. Not yet he hasn't, gritted Jimmy Dale between his teeth, and his clubbed revolver swung crashing to the head of a dark form in front of him. There was a half sigh, half moan. The form slid limply to the floor. Lanningham was floundering down the shop, leaping obstacles in a mad rush, his flashlight picking out the way. Jimmy Dale stepped swiftly backward, and his hand groped out for the drop light over the end of the bench, 
that he had knocked against in his own rush. His fingers clutched it, and the lower end of the shop was flooded with light. Except for his felt hat that lay a little distance away, there was no sign of Whitey Mark. The huddled form of the man, who but a moment since had chuckled as he pocketed old Max District's gems, lay sprawled inert upon the floor. And Lanigan was staring into the muzzle of Jimmy Dale's automatic. Drop that gun, Lanigan, said Jimmy Dale coolly, and I'll trouble you not to make a noise. It might attract attention from the street. There's been too much already. Drop that gun. The revolver clattered from Lanigan's hand to the floor. A step forward, and Jimmy Dale's toe sent it spinning under a bench. Another step, and his revolver still covering the other, he had whipped a pair of handcuffs from the officer's side pocket. Lanigan, as though the thought had never occurred to him, offered no resistance. He was staring in a dazed sort of way back and forth from Jimmy Dale to the man on the floor. What's this mean? he burst out suddenly. Where's your wrist, please? requested Jimmy Dale pleasantly. No, the left one. Thank you, as the handcuff snapped shut. Now go over there and sit down on the floor beside that fellow. Quick! Jimmy Dale's voice rasped suddenly, imperatively. Still bewildered, but a little sullen now, Lanningan obeyed. Jimmy Dale stooped quickly and snapped the other link of the handcuff over the unconscious man's right wrist. Jimmy Dale smiled. That's the approved way of taking your man, isn't it? Left wrist to the prisoner's right. He's only stunned. He'll be around in a moment. Know him? Lanigan shook his head. Take a good look at him, invited Jimmy Dale. You ought to know most of them in the business. Lanigan bent over a little closer. And then, with an amazed cry, his free hand shot forward and tore away the other's beard. It was Whitey Mac. My God, gasped Lanigan. Quite so, said Jimmy Dale evenly. You'll find the diamonds in his pockets. And excuse me, his fingers were running through Whitey Mac's clothes. Ah, here it is. The thin metal case was in his hand. A little article that belongs to me and whose loss I am free to admit caused me considerable concern until I was informed that he had only found it without having the slightest idea as to whom it belonged. It made quite a difference. He had opened the case carelessly before Lanigan's eyes. The grey seal. I'll say it for you, said Jimmy Dale whimsically. This is what probably put the idea into his head after first, 
in some way, having discovered old Max District's hiding place. And if I'd given him time enough, he would probably have stuck one of these seals in clumsy imitation of that little eccentricity of mine on the wall over there to stamp the job as Janine. You begin to get it, don't you, Lanigan? Pretty sure fire as an alibi, eh? And he'd have got away with it, too, as far as you were concerned. He had only to fire that shot, smash the window, tuck his false beard, moustache and picked cap into his pocket, put on his own hat that you see there on the floor, and yelled that the man had escaped. He would help you chase the thief, too. Rather neat, don't you think, Lanigan? And what the risk, too, considering the howl that would go up at the theft of those stones, and that known as the slickest diamond thief in the country, he would be the first to be suspected, except that the police themselves, in the person of Inspector Lanigan of headquarters, would be prepared to prove a perfectly good alibi for him. Lanigan's head was thrust forward. His eyes, hard, were riveted on Whitey Mark. My God, he said again under his breath. Then, fiercely, he'll get his for this. It was a moment before Jimmy Dale spoke. He was musingly examining the automatic in his hand. I am going on Lanigan, he observed quietly. I require, say, fifteen minutes in which to effect my escape. It is, of course, obvious that an alarm raised by you might prove extremely awkward. But a piece of canvas from that bench there, together with a bit of string, would make a most effective gag. I prefer, however, not to submit you to that indignity. Instead, I offer you the alternative of giving me your word to remain quietly where you are for 15 minutes. Lanningan hesitated. Jimmy Dale smiled. I agree, said Lanningan shortly. Jimmy Dale stepped back. The electric light switch clicked. The place was in darkness. There was a moment or two of utter stillness. Then, softly, from the front end of the shop, a whisper. If I were you, Laringan, I'd take that gun from Whitey's pocket before he comes round and beats you to it. And the door closed silently behind Jimmy Dale. End of Part 1, Chapter 10C